Let's pray as we come to God's word, and then I'll read. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've just been hearing, that the Lord Jesus Christ, and through him alone can we be redeemed. We thank you for his precious, precious blood. We thank you for his extraordinary love. And we pray for ourselves now as we come to your word. Please would you teach us. Uh, Please would you encourage us. Please would you challenge us. Give us right perspective on our lives. Help us to respond to you rightly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you've got a Bible open or you've got it on the screen behind, we're 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Sometimes we can think of believing in Jesus a little bit like booking a holiday. Uh, So you might have, maybe you've done this recently, you've taken an evening to book the ferry or to book the plane or book the train, uh, to sort out insurance perhaps, travel insurance as as well, just in case. And then once it's booked, it's done. And that's it. And you can just forget about it until the time when you need to go. You can just get back to your book, get back to your TV show, get back to whatever it was you were doing um, until the holiday. But last week, we began to think about how being a believer isn't like that. How being a believer isn't just about booking our ticket to heaven or sorting out our insurance against hell, but that it is about living for God. And we saw last week how God wants to change us now. Uh, We saw that in the light of our wonderful future inheritance, we're to set our hope on that future. We're to let it dominate our mental horizon. We saw as well how we're to be holy in all that we do after the example of our Father. And this week, Peter continues to outline for us how God wants to change us. He gives us another command. It's there in verse 17, in the middle of verse 17. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So we're going to explore that, what that means, what that looks like, and then we're going to think about the two motivations, the two reasons that Peter gives us, either side of that command for living that way. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. In other words, Peter is saying that for the rest of your life, uh, 
whether that is a week or 70 years, however long God gives you, you are to live and act obediently in the fear of God. Now, hold on, you say. We're not meant to fear God. We're meant to love God. He's our Father, after all. Hasn't Jesus rescued us from fear? Doesn't perfect love cast out fear, to quote 1 John? Aren't we told again and again in Scripture, do not fear? Well, yes, we are. And yet at the same time, right throughout the Bible, in both Old Testament and New Testament, we are called to rightly fear God. It's the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 103, wonderful, beautiful verse. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Or into the New Testament, Colossians 3, slaves are to obey their masters, fearing the Lord. Or 2 Corinthians 7, we're to bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord, fear, fearing God, it's not an unhealthy or an unchristian emotion. It's not a spiritually immature emotion that we need to grow out of. A right fear of God, rightly understood, is really important. But what does it mean? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Um, a right fear of God, it isn't like being afraid of a bully. Maybe you can think of someone like that at some point in your life and you've had to have dealings with them. Someone who is a bully, someone who is horrible and wicked and evil. And if you've ever had to speak to them, you feel a sense of dread and darkness come over you. You feel on edge in their company. Really, you just want to run away and hide from them. You just feel hatred and fear towards them. A right fear of God is not like that. It's more like being in the company of someone who is good and extraordinarily important. Perhaps uh, our former queen, or a good U.S. president, or someone with that level of status. I've never met anyone like that before, but I imagine that if I were to meet someone like that, on the one hand, I'd feel great excitement. On the other hand, I'd feel very nervous. I'd feel delighted to get to meet them, but also awestruck and not fully able just to relax. It would be an amazing privilege, and yet at the same time, my hand would be trembling, my voice would be quivering for sure, because I'd care deeply what they think. I'd love to make them smile. I'd hate to be uh, criticized or scolded by them. That's more like how we're to fear God. It's a kind of a loving reverence. It's awestruck delight. It's nervous and yet drawn towards him, not pushed away from him. And of course, that is entirely in keeping with who God is. Because there's no one as good or as important as God, like we were hearing last week. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His holiness blazes white hot. He is majestic, set apart, different, pure, 
perfectly righteous. He alone is God. He's in a category all by himself. And so we're to revere him lovingly. We're to be awestruck and delighted, nervous, and yet drawn towards him because he is so good. And Peter says to us here that we're to live out the rest of our days here on earth in reverent fear of him. That's the language that he uses, in reverent fear of him. That is, every day, every day that we live, we're to be conscious of him. We're to be aware of his awesome majesty. We're to feel this delighted nervousness that he should see everything that we do, both in pu public and in private. We should feel loath to displease him. We should feel a burning desire to make him smile. Our vision is to be dominated by him, such that what you think of me, such that what anyone else might think of me, just pales into insignificance. Peter says, that is the mindset with which you are to live out your days here on earth. Reverent fear of God. And that's the thing, actually, that's going to give us the courage to, to live out our lives as foreigners. I've been really helped, and I would highly recommend uh, this book um, by Michael Reeves, uh, Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. It's absolutely fantastic. There's a shorter version. I mean, it's fairly short, but there's a shorter, more concise version too uh, called What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? Definitely worth a read. Anyway, in it, he tells the story of Martin Luther, who, because he'd been teaching the doctrine of justification by faith, was on trial for heresy. This is in Germany in 1521. Now, going into that trial, he fully expected to receive the death sentence. And yet, under trial, he refused to row back and take back anything that he'd said. He said in trial, I'm bound by the scriptures, I cannot, I will not retract anything. And he was right to. What gave him that courage? Well, the night before his friends had been to visit him, to encourage him, I wonder what you would say to encourage someone in his shoes in that kind of circumstance. What Bible verse might you share with him? Well, Luther's friends read Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him. Fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What was it that gave Luther the courage to live rightly as a foreigner here, to do what was right, a right fear of God? Or think about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1. Amazing story. Uh, amazing courage uh, of how they defied Pharaoh and uh, allowed the little baby Hebrew boys to live. What gave them that courage? We're told it twice in Exodus 1. They feared God. They knew that God was watching, and they dared not offend him. And God blessed them amazingly, wonderfully, for their obedience. And likewise, Peter says, us too, we too, we are to live out our days as foreigners in reverent fear of God, striving to be holy at all times, 
not just when other believers happen to see us. Waging war on socially acceptable sins, because even though others might not care, God cares. To prefer to be called intolerant by the world than to be called unfaithful by God. To have very little appetite for worldly praise. Isn't she brilliant? Isn't he great? And to have this burning, driving hunger for God's approval. Well done, son. Good job, daughter. I wonder to what extent your life is marked by this right, loving, reverent fear of God. But God never just tells us uh, what to do. Often he, in, in Scripture, we're also given the reason. We're also told the why. Uh, the Bible gives us a load of different reasons and motivations for living the Christian life. And so when reading the Bible, it's always worth asking that question, what reason am I given here? Why should I live this way? Because that, thinking on that, is going to fuel our obedience. And in these few verses, Peter gives us two motivations, two reasons to live in reverent fear of God. And the first reason, uh, I, I think the second reason will be familiar to us, but perhaps the first reason might come as a bit of a surprise to us and will need some explaining. It's this, Peter says, live out your time here as, as foreigners in reverent fear. Why? Because God is still your judge. Because God is still your judge. Live in reverent fear of God because he is still your judge. Because one day, each of us is going to appear before God and he's going to weigh our deeds and examine our lives for evidence of true saving faith. God is still our judge. Let me just show that to you, and then I'll explain a little bit more. If you've got your Bibles open, if you've got your Bible on your phone open, just have a look at verse 17. What's the reason that Paul gave, uh, Peter gives us in verse 17 to live in reverent fear? Since you call on a father who judges each person's work, impartially. In other words, we're to, to rightly fear God because even though he's our father in heaven, he is also at the same time our impartial judge and he's going to weigh up every single person's life. Now hold on, we think. Um, I trust in Jesus. Surely I won't have to face God in court. Surely I'll be exempt from facing trial. Well, yes, it's, it's true that no true believer is going to be condemned, that every true believer will get there and will receive that wonderful future inheritance. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that as believers we'll get to skip trial. And Peter makes it clear that everyone is going to appear before the judgment seat of God. Verse 1 verse 17, God will judge each person's work impartially. Or 4 verse 5, you don't need to look over at it now, you can perhaps look it up later. We're told that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is a way of saying everyone who's ever lived. In other words, none of us will be exempt from facing trial. So what's going to happen at that trial? Well, two questions are going to be asked. Firstly, is this person guilty of sin? 
is this person guilty of sin? And it really won't take very long to establish that, yes, all of us are guilty of sin. All of us are guilty before God. Second question that will be asked is, did this person truly believe in Jesus to save them? Now, at that point in proceedings, I might well put up my hand and say, yes, I did. I trusted in Jesus. He took my place on the cross. He died so I wouldn't have to. But like a fair judge, God won't take my word for it. Is it good? Let's look at the evidence. And then God will impartially judge my work, that is, my life, what I've lived, what I've done, how I've lived. He'll look at my public and private life to see whether there is evidence to convict me of having true saving faith. Not looking to whether I've called him my father, but to whether I've lived uh, as his son. Establishing whether I was, in fact, a foreigner here on earth, or whether really, to all intents and purposes, I was just a native. He won't be looking for perfection, but he will be looking for real evidence of real saving faith. So you see, it won't be just a case of showing our ticket and our insurance document, quoting the date of when we believed, or referencing the place where we were baptized. Yes, it's faith and only faith in Jesus which saves us, but it's how we've lived, it's our works, which confirm our faith as real or expose it as false. And therefore, Peter says to believers, God is still your judge. One day, he's going to examine your life for evidence of true saving faith. And therefore, you've got to live out your days here on this earth in reverent fear of him, not fearing hell every time we sin, but likewise not presuming on heaven, even if there's no change to my life. So that's the first motivation that Paul, uh, excuse me, that Peter gives us to live obediently in the fear of God. God, who is our Father, He is still our judge. Uh, second reason, and I guess more briefly here, uh, second motivation from verses 18 to 19. Why should I live obediently in the fear of God? Well, let, let's have a look at verses 18 and 19. For you know, for, I guess you there, introducing the next reason. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now we're told to live obediently in the fear of God because of what God has done for us. Uh, we know, don't we, that God didn't just significantly improve our lives at the cost of a huge amount of money. I don't know if you've ever seen um, the, the TV program DIY SOS. It's very, very popular. Um, Nick Knowles is the one who is the presenter um, who runs it. Um, the scenario, there's a deserving family um, living in some small, run-down house which isn't fit for purpose anymore and they're struggling. And Nick Knowles and the camera crew and a bunch of local uh, tradespeople will come in through a load of time and effort and money at this 
to significantly improve and upgrade their house and their day-to-day lives. And it's, it's a great show. Um, Peter says that is nothing like what God has done for us. That is not even in the same category. Peter says God hasn't just significantly improved our lives. He's redeemed us out of an empty way of life. Again, that's the language that he uses. Redeemed us out of an empty way of life. You see, life without God, life ruled by sin, Peter says, is empty. Not that such a life is totally empty of any significance or purpose. Not saying that um, those who don't believe can never make any kind of a difference or do any kind of good in this world. We are blessed and we are, we are grateful for God's grace. We benefit um, from people who, don't, who are not of faith uh, doing significant things. Peter's not writing off everything which isn't of faith as being absolutely, totally useless. But what he's saying is that the light, that life without God, or more closer to home, the life we used to live, or perhaps the life that we would be living if it weren't for God's mercy in our lives, that life is empty in that it misses the person for whom we were made. It misses the purpose for which we were put on this planet. It isn't able to free itself from slavery to sin. It is a, a kind of shadowy existence, if you like, empty. And yet God in his mercy redeemed us out of that empty way of living, breaking open the change which tethered us to sin, introducing us to the person for whom we were made, giving us purpose and fullness as we live in, in sync with our Creator's design. Not making us less human, but more fully human. Freeing us from judgment, giving us hope of glory. So God hasn't just significantly improved our lives. He has redeemed us from an empty way of life. And the cost of that wasn't just a load of time and money and effort. Peter says, we weren't redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. You know, if we were to find a lump of gold, we would think we'd hit the jackpot. And yet Peter says, nothing in all creation, not even a lump of gold or silver, compares in value to the life of the Lord Jesus, his precious blood, which was shed for our redemption. So Peter reminds us of this reason. Live obediently in fear of God, remembering what God has done for us, redeeming us from an empty way of life, at huge cost, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. And so just as we close, again, as we think about this whole theme, let's not think for a moment that believing in Jesus is like booking a holiday. Let's not think that with a ticket to heaven and insurance against hell arranged, we can just go back to putting our feet up and forgetting about all of that and going back to what we were doing before. Peter says we're to live out our lives, to live out our days in reverent fear of God, in loving obedience of Him, because He's still our judge. Yes, He's our rescuer, but He's still our judge. 
and because in Christ he's paid the ultimate price to redeem us. Let's pray. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that you are our father, but also that you are our judge, that you are impartial in your judgment. And therefore we pray, please, that you would fuel our faith, that you would grow in us a loving fear of you, a delight, but also a nervousness before you, our Heavenly Father. Help us to live our lives in obedience, in reverent fear of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.